You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It's Wednesday, July 8th, 2020, just after market close in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington in New York, joined shortly by Ed Harrison from near Washington, D.C. But first, Peter Cooper with today's stories. Thanks, Ash. The pandemic has uprooted the lives of millions of people in countless ways, especially as it concerns to where they live. So today, I'd like to hone in on real estate. Approximately one in five Americans have relocated because of COVID-19 or know someone who has, according to Pew Research Center. In early June, 3% of respondents say they had moved either permanently or temporarily because of the pandemic. And 6% said that someone moved into their household because of it. 14% of those respondents who hadn't personally experienced relocation say they know someone who had moved. The most affected age demographic are young adults from 18 to 29. About one out of 10 had moved temporarily or permanently. 28% of respondents said that they moved due to high risk of contracting the virus. But college campus closures, 23%, and being with family, 20%, were other driving factors. 18% said that it was due to financial reasons. About 61% of adults, or 6 out of 10, said they moved into a relative's home. 41% moved into their parents' or in-law's home. 4% with an adult child or in-law. And 16% with another relative. The remaining 39% relocated to a second home or vacation home moved in with a friend, moved to a temporary home, apartment, or hotel room, or acquired a new permanent home by rental or purchase. 3% had other situations different from these categories. Renters who haven't moved yet may eventually be forced to. Numerous eviction cases are starting to move through the court systems, and moratoriums are beginning to be lifted. According to the COVID-19 Eviction Defense Project, 20% of the 110 million Americans who rent face risk of eviction by September 30th. African-American and Hispanic households are most at risk. According to a survey from the U.S. Census Bureau, 44% of Latino renters, 41% of black renters, and 21% of white renters had either no or slight confidence that they could pay rent next month or would likely defer payment. Little federal help has been offered to renters, and only 15 states currently require landlords to verify that their buildings aren't covered by the moratorium. The burden of fighting eviction complaints then has been shifted onto renters. While things are looking pretty bleak for renters, homebuyer mortgage demand is high. Possibly due to a mix of so many people needing to relocate, the exodus from urban areas, and the record low rates. Mortgage applications rose 5% for the week, and the volume of applications are 33% higher now than they were a year ago. Since the reopening of the nation in mid-May, buyer demand has been booming. But the lower supply of homes for sale has been an obstacle in achieving more home sales. The average rate for 30-year fixed income mortgages have dropped from 3.29% to 3.26%, which is providing a lot of help for buyers. And applications to refinance homes are now 111% higher than they were a year ago. Even with this boom of mortgage applications, according to Black Knight, as of June 30th, 4.58 million homeowners are in forbearance plans. This represents 8.6% of all active mortgages, down slightly from 8.8% last week. Together, these mortgages represent just under $1 trillion in unpaid principal. About 25% of homeowners in forbearance had remitted their payment in June, 
as compared to 46% in April and 30% in May. And while all of this seems promising for real estate, we must bear in mind the consequences that pausing or reversing reopening plans, as well as the extra unemployment benefits expiring, will have on homeowners. If things continue to go downhill, homeowners, renters, landlords, and banks are all at risk. And with that, I'll hand it back to you, Ash. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome back. Welcome back, Ash. It's good to be back. Yeah, I imagine it is good to be back. Uh, how was your uh, your little mini vacation? Oh, it was glorious. I laid out on the beach, and no, I, I stayed home. <laughs> barely, I barely left my apartment, and I worked both days. So here we are. <laughs> not 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 a very good mini vacation, but it's good to have you back here. Got a lot done. So uh, got a new camera hooked up. So that's exciting. Yes, very nice. Yeah, to go yeah. along with the beautiful microphone. Beautiful red microphone, indeed. So Ed, uh, let's jump right in. What are you looking at? Yeah, actually, more than anything else, I'm looking at what we're doing here on uh, Real Vision in terms of the interviews that we've had, some of the guests that um, we're going to have coming forward. You know, for instance, we have uh, Tyler Neville, who is uh, one of uh, the Real Vision uh, staff who used to work at Hedge Funds, who's going to talk to me tomorrow. You're going to be talking to Rao. I'm very interested, actually, in two or three of the interviews that we did recently, George yeah. Magnus, uh, Stephanie Kelton. I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the daily briefing we did yesterday. Uh, so a lot of stuff about, you know, what they're talking about and how we can piggyback upon that in terms of thinking about where we are in, in markets right now. Yeah, all great pieces. Which one do you want to start with? I found uh, I found the Stephanie Kelton piece to be especially interesting. What were your thoughts? Yeah, I thought it was interesting. The most interesting thing about it for me now is because uh, you know I looked at some of the comments and so forth, and almost right on the the cusp of that, we are um, going to talk to Daniel Lacal tomorrow for RV Live. He has a much more sort of I would call it an Austrian take, Austrian economics. And we uh, we scheduled a interview with Bob Murphy, which is going to be on the 14th. That's Tuesday of next week. That was a suggestion from someone in the comments uh, from that. Again, you know, uh, Austrian economics is uh, much more libertarian. Uh, uh, it's very much at odds with MMT. And so my thinking is it's sort of a good juxtaposition to get a sense of, you know, what are they saying on one side and then what are they saying on the other side? Uh, I My thinking in terms of what Stephanie Kelton had to say is really it's all about not whether you believe um, in the framework that was set up under modern monetary theory. The question is, is whether that is going to be the framework being used uh, for policy at the national level in the United States. And to the degree that it is, then the question is, what are the implications for the economy? What are the implications for asset prices? So th that was really my takeaway. I, you know, there were a lot of comments, but one of the there were one or two comments exactly of the type that I'm talking about now that uh, uh, focused on that, and that's really where you got to focus. 
Well, you know, for me, what I thought was interesting about it was it was just a great introduction to it. If you're not someone who's an MMTer, I'm not an MMTer myself. Uh, I thought it was just a great introduction. I thought Marshall Auerbach did a great job of just framing the story in a way that made it very accessible. And Stephanie, you know, followed through very clearly on making the case for it. You know, I also thought my takeaway from it was that so, so often uh, we hear MMT defined by people who disagree with it. Uh, you know, and that's a little bit like uh, hearing about steak from vegans. You don't really get a good sense of what this is about until you hear someone who's actually making the case in an affirmative way. I thought it was really interesting uh, how much Stephanie talked about inflation and effectively said, look, the thing about MMT, MMT gets this bad rap. And again, I'm not taking a position here on it, but just to frame her argument was that MMT gets criticized very often for, quote unquote, ignoring inflation, which isn't the case. As I understood, and maybe you can give me your uh, framework on it, as I understood it, basically what Stephanie was saying is it's it's moving away from a financial constraint toward a resource constraint. And, and what I took that to mean was that the key defining factor uh, on, on what allows uh, governments, especially governments with monetary independence, to run deficits uh, and to incur debt is, is the constraint of inflation. So the knock on MMT in Stephanie Kelton's framework, at least, that it is ignoring inflation as she sees it is simply not the case. Yeah, so I, I, I enjoyed that uh, discussion. And as you were saying that, I was thinking about how the MMTers talk about it in terms of, you know, you can never run out of points for the scoreboard. You know, if the Bulls are playing the Magic and, you know, the Bulls run up the score, you're not saying, are you going to run out of points to put uh, onto the scoreboard? It, you know, it, that's just a veil, the, the money. The question is, is what are the resources? What, how many resources and where are those resources directed? I think that's actually where Austrian economics gets at it. And that's why I'm interested in talking to Bob Murphy, because Austrian economics talks about not just the aggregate level of resource, but also the utilization across different sectors, how those resources are distributed as a result of different policy uh, effects. The interesting bit, I think, in terms of inflation that I got from Marshall's questioning was, uh, you know, there was a certain undercurrent of what exactly are you doing to uh, to, to um, tamp down an inflation, and how much of that is a policy question versus a, um, you know, right now we use the Federal Reserve to tamp down an inflation. Do we really think that? You know, politicians are going to be able to take the the cues necessary in terms of taxation and so forth to you know really get inflation under control, or is it going to be a problem? That was sort of uh, the un uh, you know unwritten backstory to the the question that they were talking about, and also in that same vein, the unwritten backstory to that I got away from it was that it, to the degree that you know you use modern monetary theory as a framing. The question then becomes a policy question. Suddenly, you have a, 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 a you know people thinking I could spend money without any any problems whatsoever. And we know that politicians, when they get to the spending, they're going to do it. So the question becomes, you know, what happens when you get to that level? Where is the inflation going to go? So I think that those are the the unwritten uh, answers that we need. Uh, we need the, the unwritten questions that we need answers to rather. Yeah, 
I think that's very well said. And I, I thought that, you know, for me, it, it, it raised many questions as well as providing answers. So we're going to have to see. And this isn't about taking a position, uh, making an assertion about one particular view of the world being correct or incorrect. It's just about understanding the frameworks that are out there for thinking about the macroeconomic world. Yeah, and uh, let me put it this way: that you may, not, if you're looking at it from a modern monetary theory perspective, with deficits say of 15 or 20 percent as a result of a second wave in, let's say, the year 2021, what impact does that have on asset prices? Uh, you know, because the the you know, if the government is saying we believe that we can deficit spend uh, th that there's no resource constraint there, and obviously there's no money constraint, then what does that mean for bonds? What does that mean for equities? That's the real question that people have to be asking themselves. Yeah. And talking of constraints, uh, I also very much enjoyed your interview uh, with George Magnus. What were your takeaways from that interview? The biggest takeaway is that the China issue, more than anything else, is a political issue going forward, that um, really we're talking about a geopolitical um, uh, nexus more than anything else. And that's where it's much more difficult to say what the answer is going to be. It's, it's hard to handicap how things would go you know, what one person would do who's a leader versus another and what how they perceive the, the outcomes. So I think there's a lot more uncertainty around that particular outcome when the politics are driving the situation more than the economics. Yeah, and it's a very comprehensive view uh, of this, of, of what's happening right now in China. You take a look with uh, George at uh, weaponization of the dollar, uh, the banking system, you talk about security policy, you talk about tech, which I thought was very interesting, uh, the storm clouds that are gathering potentially around trade, uh, potential new sanctions around Hong Kong. It's a very broad and varied view of everything that's happening in China right now. The biggest takeaway that I had that was counter trend was the concept that if it weren't Trump, it were someone else in the White House, actually it would be worse for China in terms of how people would crack down. I thought that was very interesting because the concept is, is that, you know, you have uh, the United States and China at odds with one another, or sorry, the U.S. and Europe at odds with one another to a certain degree in a way that's not allowing them to align together against China. Yeah, and I also thought it was interesting that he said that you know in in the event that we get a new president, there may be some stylistic differences, some tone differences, but the structural constraints or the structural challenges still remain. And also, a final point, I thought it was really interesting. He's he sees uh, he sees some potential risk ahead, or at least headwinds ahead for the Chinese economy. I thought it was very interesting that he drew a distinction between the supply side, the export side of the Chinese economy, which is quite strong due to overseas needs for things like uh, masks uh, and, uh, and uh, other supplies around COVID, and the domestic consumption component of the Chinese economy, which he believes is structurally weakening. 
Right. And, you know, so all of these things coming together, when you talk about MMT, uh, eventually Austrian economics, when we're talking about China, uh, the geopolitical tensions, it's all creating a picture that, you know, pieces from a macro perspective that are going to give you a good sense of, you know, what are the macro inputs that are going to uh, take us further. And and then, obviously, the you know, another caveat there uh, that we have to talk about is the Fed and uh, liquidity and, you know, what's going on with regard to liquidity provision and, and the markets itself. So I think Tyler Neville, he's going to talk a lot about that, but also in my conversation with Dan Russo, I thought that was a very good conversation to bring that together, uh, both yeah. the fundamental side and the um, and, and the technical analysis side. He was one of the few people that I've talked to who really integrates the two incredibly well. So I, I'm really looking forward to actually speaking to him again in the the September October time frame, which, as I've said, I yeah. think it's sort of the bogey for when uh, a lot of the the second spike stuff uh, uh, comes online. Yeah, I was going to say exactly the same thing about Dan Russo. Interesting to see someone bringing technicals and fundamentals together, walking through on a sector-by-sector -sector basis, looking industry-by-industry. Industry. I thought it was a really interesting piece. I thought it was really interesting that that he sees the potential, or at least the shadow, of gathering inflation. He was looking at commodities, uh, five-year versus five-year treasury versus five-year forwards, uh, rate of change basis on that, suggesting potential for inflation in the future. I thought that was an interesting and, uh, and counter-trend call. Right. And, you know, counter to some of the other people that we've spoken to in terms of technical analysis, I think he was a little bit more cautious with regard to uh, what the market trends are saying about uh, the market. You know, he obviously was talking about growth over value, but I think it's interesting that, you, you know, one of the people that I talked to last week was talking about the, the concept that we have breadth in the market, that the market actually uh, is showing greater breadth than it had before. But when you look at the S&P or you look at the NASDAQ in particular, on a uh, when you look at it not on a market cap weighted, but an equal cap-weighted index. It is The differential between the market cap-weighted NASDAQ, which is how they do it, versus the equal weight NASDAQ is the most on record uh, since people have been able to trace that, that differential. So to me, that speaks to a, a market that is definitely being led by the winners. And those are the winners that Dan Russo was talking about, we're talking about the Amazons of the world and, and, and so forth. So I'm somewhat skeptical about the concept that we're seeing greater breadth in the market uh, recently and that, you know, there are new, there's new leadership in the market. As far as I can tell, it's very much weighted towards the Googles, the Amazons, uh, the Netflix of the world. And a lot of that has to do with ETF flow. I don't know if you know this, but the, we've had uh, a record amount of ETF flow into the market. This is the most that we've ever had. It's actually in the six months that we've had so far this year, more inflows into uh, markets for ETFs than the entirety of 2019. So to me, that, that tells you there's a wall of liquidity that is, that's hitting the market, and that's giving you an uptrend in terms of equities. And that uptrend, there's nothing on the horizon specifically immediately that says that that uptrend is going to stop. So I think that 
uh, you know, that's that's a big part of the missing piece of the puzzle over the time frame between now and when we start to get uh, Q4 and 2021 earning earnings estimates in September and October. Yeah. And once again, a self-reinforcing trend, a positive feedback loop. Right. So uh, I think that valuations are definitely stretched. A lot of the inflows are a lot of the reason why. And I'm very interested to see what Tyler, who is uh, very much into the flow dynamics, worked on uh, Wall Street, uh, you know, on the buy side, uh, what he has to say about uh, what he's seen and how he thinks that's going to play out over the medium term. Yeah, and you know that's a nice pivot. I was reading in yesterday's credit write downs you know, to talk about to talk about PEs, and I'm quoting here: the S&P 500's forward 12-month PE ratio is 21.8, well above the index's five-year average of 16.9 and the 10-year average of 15.2. Right. So I mean, we, we don't have to go way back. I mean, you don't. We're not necessarily saying, okay, uh, let's go back and take a look at the forward PE over a 50-year period. No, just the very brief period. So when you look at it on a very brief period, five years or 10 years before today, we're at levels that are 25, 30, 40 percent above the levels of that. So that tells you that this is a rich environment. So all of the gains that we've seen uh, have been a product of multiple expansion. That's the result of a lack of, uh, you know, a, a lack of guidance. When yeah. companies are pulling their guidance, they're not giving you any EPS guidance, uh, then it makes it a lot easier to give them a free pass. That free pass comes to an end, September, October timeframe. That's when we're going to find out, uh, you know, top down versus bottom up, meeting in the middle, and whether those make sense in terms of, uh, you know, having this multiple expansion. Because I think that earnings are not going to be as robust as we think that they are. And people are, are not going to be willing to pay th that level 21 times earnings uh, at this point in the market. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Yeah. You know, and that also leads us to another potentially bearish indicator from credit write-downs. You talked about rising evictions. What are your thoughts on that front? Yeah, so I'm looking for stimulus. I saw uh, my congressman, uh, actually, it was uh, he used to be my congressman, but now he's a senator, Chris Van Hollen. He was talking to Bloomberg News, and he was talking about, I hope that, uh, we get a stimulus bill passed. Basically, what's happened is is, is that uh, Congress went into recess for two weeks. Uh, w uh, the first thing that's going to fall off of the radar is the enhanced employment, uh, unemployment number. That's the $600 per week that people are getting. Uh, the, uh, many other things are, are about to happen. That's the evictions. That means that when people aren't getting their $600 and they can't pay uh, because they're not getting enough money because they're still unemployed, then uh, at that point, their landlord can evict them and throw them out, even though uh, you know we're going through a financial crisis or an economic crisis. So to me, that's where the rubber hits the road in terms of now we know that we have a policy error that that the policy stimulus has uh, eroded, you know, very quickly 
and it could have a very deleterious effect on uh, on the economy going forward. And I look at evictions as a a, a symbol of of what I would call very very poor economic policy. Yeah. If if you're the richest country in the world and you're throwing people out in the street in the middle of a pandemic, uh, that's just unconscionable. How is it possible that could happen unless that's a policy error? It, it would be a policy error, and I think it's the sort of error that has a, a ripple effect in terms of how people think about their own uh, lives, their consumption, their savings, and that's going to be very negative for the economy. It's a signpost in that way, but it's also a, a, it's a representation of where we are at that particular point, at that juncture. Because if you're getting evictions, you're also not getting necessarily the policy stimulus that you want for uh, you know states and local governments that are going to be cutting back. You're not getting the policy stimulus that you want in terms of uh, moratoria on um, on interest uh, for debt. Uh, like credit cards or mortgages, so all of these things are coming due in the in the very near future. Yeah, you've been remarkably consistent about that time frame: end of the summer, August, September, October, to what would be the time to look for. Uh, you know, I'm also struck by, in addition to the moral dimension of throwing people out in the street in the middle of uh, of, a, of a pandemic, uh, it's also interesting from a sentiment indicator perspective. You have to imagine that something like this. Uh, must have, and if this the waves of eviction begin to continue to rise, you have to wonder what the psychological impact on an economy is when people have you know former coworkers, friends, family members who are literally being thrown out on the street. I mean, that is a really significant emotional blow for the country if that begins to become a trend. Right. Yeah, and, and, and that, as as I say, you know, the richest country in the world, as compared to any other country you know, with people being thrown out in the street. It reminds me of the Bonus Army. I don't know if we talked about this, but yeah. the Bonus Army in 1932, you know, when you have veterans, people who fought for your country, uh, you know, in, living in Hoovervilles on the, the banks of the, um, of not the Potomac, but I believe it was the Anacostia River back then. It's just ridiculous. And that was a symbol in 1932 of the Depression. So I think it's a similar kind of thing that will be a uh, a, a signpost symbol, and it, it will have a psychological impact, as you're saying. Yeah. You know, talking of which, other, other numbers, other trends. So the U.S. now has over 3 million confirmed cases of coronavirus, uh, and it's rising in the three most populous states very rapidly. That, of course, is California, Florida, and Texas. Uh, you know, rising case counts is the thing that I'm watching. Now, I know that there are some testing effects here, potentially confounding variables. The more tests you do, the higher the number of people who will test positive. But the percentages of tests turning positive are rising in places like Florida and California. So I think this is a material uh, a material number that we need to watch. Over 60,000 additional cases per day uh, at, at the last full day count. This is a, a pretty a pretty sobering uh, number. And the numbers uh, of additional case counts, if you look at the trend lines, all above the moving averages. Yeah, so the question to you is, uh, what does that mean in terms of the economy? I mean, uh, how much of an impact is that going to have on the economy? I'll just play devil's advocate. Uh, we know that the people are skew younger. Uh, yep. We have better ability to deal with the virus. Could it be that it doesn't have the same impact from a death perspective 
and uh, overload perspective that it had in New York earlier? And also, could it be that you know we saw the devastating impact of shutdowns, lockdowns, and it's not going to have the same lockdown impact? Maybe it will have a muted impact on the economy. Well, look, I mean, statistically, the one thing that we know for certain is that the death count is, of course, a lagging indicator uh, after testing positive. So we're going to have to see. Look, the, the mortality rate is still hovering near the 5% mark in diagnosed cases. I think it's 4.8 or 4.9. That's probably overstated because there are cases uh, of people who are, who are simply contracting the virus, not getting tested and are recovering without incident. But still, it's a very high number. That number is going to be lagged again on the death count side. So we're going to have to wait and see. I certainly hope, and I know you do and we all do, hope that that is the case, that it is going to be more muted that there's going to be less of an impact in terms of human lives. But we just don't know that. And I think the thing that seems relatively certain is if the death count begins to rise in those most populous states, in California, Texas, and Florida especially, that we're going to have to see a rollback of the reopening. It's just impossible to fathom anything else happening. We haven't gotten that much better at treating this disease. So possibly there's some demographic tailwinds that are in our favor. But you know, to answer your question about the economy, we're going to have to wait and see what filters through. And if the mortality rate is anything on par with what we saw in New York, it's hard to imagine how the economy uh, does not get back into a shutdown-like mode. I don't know. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's very similar to what I was saying in terms of the signposts about evictions. If people start dying en masse in high, much higher numbers than they are now, then I agree with you that at a minimum, it's going to be difficult not to get localized shutdowns. And if we're talking about Arizona, California, Texas, Florida, states that have very high percentage of our GDP, then that, that's a big problem. And what's more, as I've always said, I believe that people lead government. That is, is, is that you know the reaction from consumers will happen irrespective of what government does. And so what that really means is that if those numbers happen, that signpost will, uh, will result in a consumer pullback. The yeah. question, therefore, is you know, how much of a pullback? Uh, number one is how much uh, do we see a rise and then how much of a pullback do we see as a result of that? But to the degree that we see a pullback, any pullback, the fact that it's California, Arizona, Florida, Texas, states like that, that's significant. Yeah, they're huge economies. They're huge economies on a national scale. Uh, if you you know put them against uh, some of our European allies, they're huge, huge economies. And, you know, and the the one thing that we know that we can count uh, is tragically the mortality uh, of this virus. I, I remember uh, when we were when we were marking a solemn anniversary here in New York, when the number uh, of deaths in New York City rose above the 2,977 mark. That, of course, being the number of people who died uh, around the country on 9/11. And I remember discussing that here on this show and the the solemnity that we talked about that with. And now we are at a total U.S. death count of 130,000 attributed directly to the virus itself. That's twice as the number uh, of U.S. soldiers who died uh, in the Vietnam War. These numbers are very substantial. And when you look at them on an excess mortality basis, meaning the total number of people on a year-over-year -year basis that died uh, relative to the prior year, it's even more grim. So the numbers are significant, to put it mildly. And, you know, as you were saying that, I, I, it occurred to me that we do have record numbers of deaths uh, as we speak. 
in places like Arizona and in Texas. I know that. So even though the overall counts are going down, uh, the reality is is that in the places that are the hot spots, the numbers are going up, and at some point, those are going to overwhelm the downtrend that we see elsewhere. So my hope, as I said before, and as you indicated, is that uh, we we don't see it as as bad as uh, it could be, but I think that we have to be prepared for something pretty pretty substantial here, and that creates downside risk, especially to the degree that. The market is now being driven by uh, inflows uh, from ETFs, uh, and those flows are what are causing the market to go up. I think that you know we, there, there's a lot of um, vulnerability at this particular juncture as a result of that. Yeah. You know, on a day like today, Ed, even the light news seems a little bit darker. I was reading this morning about Brooks Brothers filing bankruptcy. You look like a Brooks Brothers man. I'm sure you have at least. Actually, a- you know, this is a Brooks Brothers shirt. That's funny that you would say that. Yes, that is. That's very funny. Yeah. So this is a Brooks Brothers shirt. It's one of these uh, non-pressed Brooks Brothers shirts that uh, that I bought uh, three or four years ago. Yeah. So uh, it it does it does hit home. Uh, Brooks Brothers. Um, Going bankrupt is uh, it's an iconic brand, but uh, will it be liquidated? I don't think so. Uh, but it, it tells you that there's more retail apocalypse to come. Yeah, it it feels something like the end of an era, right? It feels like a shift that's taking place. Obviously, uh, people are wearing fewer and fewer button-down collars, which Brooks Brothers brought to the United States uh, like 200 years ago after someone saw a polo game and saw that they'd buttoned down their collars to keep the collars from flapping. This is an iconic brand, an iconic piece of Americana. Uh, and to see this, it just feels something like a transition. And it doesn't feel like a transition, frankly, into a better moment in business culture and American history. Unfortunately, that is the case. Well, Ed, should we leave it there? Yeah, I think it is, we should. I mean, let me just give a, a generic uh, sort of uh, overview here. I think that um, it's business as usual. Uh, markets were up today. Uh, I think that the summer is a bit of a pause. We need to take a look at the macro picture, both in terms of you know what are the economics that are driving things, what are the policy measures that are driving things, how does the virus affecting that, and then finally, what are the flows? So those are all the things that we were talking about today. And even though they, I think they impinge on the market over the short term, it's the flows that are going to be driving. Those other factors, I think, are going to be something that we need to look at as we get out of the summer. And uh, we need to just have uh, cog- we need to be cognizant of, of what those uh, what those parameters are. Yeah. Speaking of parameters, let's hit these numbers really quickly before we close. Uh, the Dow Jones up 0.68 percent to this 26,067 level. S&P 500 up 0.78 percent to the 3169 level, and the Nasdaq up 1.44 percent to the 10,492 level. So as you say. Business as usual on the stock exchange, not business as usual on Main Street or in American business culture. We'll have to leave it there, unfortunately. Thanks for joining us, Ed. Good to talk to you, Ash. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. 
Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.